welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode 210, recorded July 18th, 2015. So we're continuing our first volume of Star Trek, the original series, before it was called the original series, but uh, just Ah. Star Trek Volume 1 by DC Comics, uh, 1984-ish. Cool. Right. So, uh, yeah, because Next Gen hadn't been on the scene yet. Right. So, Donovan, I hear there's a new Star Trek TV series announced by CBS itself, not a rumor. Yes, and it won't be uh, on CBS, it seems. <laughs> well, not broadcast CBS, but internet CBS. Right, yep. No, it's pretty exciting. I wish it would come out, you know, the year of the 50th anniversary, but a few months later is not too bad. No. So, so it starts January of 2017, right? That's what they say. Right. Of course, that's far enough in the future, you know. Who knows? It might shift around a little bit. But uh, news that there's actually going to be a TV show is phenomenal. And they have not given any real detail as to what the show is going to be about or what time period or universe right. it's going to be set in. Yeah. So, interesting. Uh, is it going to be Captain Worf TV series? Probably not. Probably not. Um, is it going to be set in the J.J. Abrams verse, but without... Kirk and Spock, since they probably can't afford the salaries. Probably. Yeah. And that's where I think it should be set. Yeah. I mean, as much as I love the Prime universe, and and that's, you know, my go-to place when I think of Star Trek, uh, I do think that, you know, if they're going to have this new universe in the movies, then that should be the universe that they have all all live-action media pointing to. Cool. Unfortunately, we might have to cut ties with the the live the Prime Universe, right. as far as live action stuff. So the re the reboot verse. There you go. Right, right. Yeah, that that only makes sense. So what will they do? Will they do next gen, or will they save that for the movies? Will they do a totally different part of reboot Taws, um, a different location or something? And then every once in a while, you might be able to get some of the uh, movie actors right. in little bit parts or something, or little cameos. Right. Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, as far as getting a brand new cast, that probably makes the most sense. Right. Uh, but I still think it would be cool if you could keep maybe one person from the from the movie verse. Right. Kind of like how and... Worf was sprinkled. Just add a little Worf. <laughs> yeah, but I'm thinking, you know, just you know, do do the Sulu series that everybody always wanted with George Takei, but with John Cho and and you know. He's he he's a famous actor, but he keeps doing TV shows, so it's not like he's would be opposed to doing a show. Yeah, and then yeah. that way you could still have it tied into the, you know, has that natural tie with the movies that uh, that's not too jarring when you just start over a new series with a brand new cast. Right, but then the move, but then the movies would lose. So him. yeah, because yeah. he'd be <laughs> Captain Sulu, and it. I mean, that all sounds good. It's just that. It's a it's a big enough stretch having Captain Captain Kirk, you know, fresh out of the academy, become right. captain of a starship. But then if the same thing happened with, uh, you know, with Sulu, an- again another guy that 
has almost no experience. Um, I don't know. That's a bit of a stretch. But that would be cool. Agreed. No, I'm with you. I I get it, but I'm just saying I would. That's what I would like to see. Yeah. That or just go back to Enterprise. What what happened right after Archer set it up? Set up the Federation. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, 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 oh. Oh, it all comes back to Enterprise. And I'm sure that'll happen considering how successful Enterprise was. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, it was it was Enterprise was successful in making a war a special place in your heart. No, I just think just it, not the it just doesn't get very much love. So I just want to I want to throw it as much love as as I can because it it deserves some. You are that way. You like to support the things you like. That's good. That's wonderful. Okay. Well, I guess we're going to find out. I guess another thing just to mention is that uh, it's going to be part of their internet pay service. CBS's internet pay service which i guess exactly which i guess has been out for a while now um they're they've been building a a subscription base um but you know compared to other things like netflix they're pretty punny as far as the number of people that have that are paying the six bucks a month or whatever they charge right yeah and and the bad thing is is that i mean they have a huge back catalog of of all of cbs's and UPNs and and things like that uh, network shows, right? Including all the Star Treks that you could watch, you know, streaming mm-hmm. uh, if you pay for the subscri- subscription. But then you can also watch um, current shows, like the last like four or five shows of a particular episode um, TV series of the TV series that are on no. CBS now. But there's like a like a two week delay. So like if Big Bang Theory comes on today. Then you can watch that exact episode on all access with the pay subscription tomorrow, or you can wait two weeks and watch that same episode for free on all access. So they haven't really, you know, made it a must to right. start paying that six dollars. But right. if Star Trek's going to be only through the paid subscription part and not part of their free service, uh, then I could see, you know, at least myself biting that hook. <laughs> yeah, and that'd be rough for me because I really don't. I I, I normally would not have any interest in uh, in paying that six bucks a month, except right. for Star Trek. So who knows? Maybe I will do the same thing and um, pay the money, and maybe I'll find more stuff on on the service that that I take advantage of too. But right. it's hard not to go for that. Uh, that TV series, and I think I don't think I can wait for the first season uh, DVD and then binge watch. I'm gonna right. have to be watching it when it's happening. Absolutely, yep. yeah. I mean, like for like the original Taws came out on NBC, but it was a mm-hmm. CBS production. It was. So, it was. It wasn't CBS at the time. CBS uh, bought out Paramount eventually. So at the time, uh, it was Desilu. It was not. Well, uh, okay. I, I thought. Okay. Okay. I, I thought even then CBS was the production company in association with Desi Lou, but it was but NBC is the one that picked up the show to, for broadcast. Okay, I'm pretty sure CBS had nothing to do with it until they bought out Paramount. Okay, I might be wrong. I don't know. No, that, that no, you're probably right. So um, anyway, the, the important Anyways. thing is we got a new TV show. It's too far into the future as far as I'm concerned, but it takes time to ramp up. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, Kurtzman. Okay, so how about production company? Oh, yeah. I'm glad that he's in it. Okay, yeah. So Kurtzman, one of the two 
initial writers of the reboot movie, 2009 movie, is a producer. His production company is doing it. It doesn't look like it's in association with Bad Robot, but who knows? Um, At least I didn't see him mentioning Bad Robot. So it really is Kurtzman and then some lady who uh, is a producer for a lot of other TV shows in the past. Uh, right. So it, it, um, Orsi, Orky, whatever, he's has nothing to do with this supposedly, according to what I've read so far. And as far as I know, Bad Robot production and JJ doesn't have anything to do with it either. So, which makes sense, right? Just but uh, it's it's so new that we have no idea what they're really going to do. Yeah, they, right. they they released one press press statement and. Uh, that's it, right? Uh, that's the only thing I've ever seen that's official. Yeah, I I think it was only one press thing, but then I've read several different articles from different – and I've had – it's mostly all the articles I read are saying the same things, but um, I think what, the last one I read had a little bit more information. Right. But uh, yeah, I guess we'll we'll find out as time goes on, right? Very we'll have little leaks. Little leaks here and there. It'll be good. It'll be great. To it. It'll be great. Yeah. But I'm also looking forward to these comics that we're about to read. Oh, yes. So let's get to it. Yeah, so we're going to wrap up the Wormhole Connection, which turns out to be a four-parter, we find out, and then start two more uh, standalones. Well, actually, they're not. The last one. Are they both standalones? Hmm. The... Yeah, they're both standalones. Right. That's right. Okay. Yeah, so uh, what do you think about this original Volume 1 um... overall? So far, I like it. I think I think it's taken a little bit of time to find its footing, right? But uh, the stories are good. The artwork's good. The um, you know, uh, I'm liking it. I think uh, there's a few things that I would have changed, but you know, that's looking at it 30 years later, so it's not right. quite quite fair. Yeah. What about you? Um, I don't think it's as good as some of the other things we've been reading. Um, I thought the Wildstorm folks did a good job. Um. I think Volume 2 tended to be better than Volume 1, at least from what I'm seeing so far. But, uh, yeah, it's good. Um, I think the artwork is good, but a little old-fashioned, but product of their times. Um, there's a lot of times when Kirk is drawn and other characters, like we'll get to see Ambassador Fox again soon, where, um, I don't know, they, they look sometimes very, like, idealized, stereotypical comic book uh, hero guys. Right. You know, so pretty gen- generic looks. And definitely Fox looks like he lost some weight and looks a little bit different from he how he did in the original uh, TV episode. And by the way, that was, that was Galileo 7 he was in, wasn't it? Um, I was going to go... Robert Fox? Right, Ambassador Robert Fox. So he was the guy that kept on saying, no, let's go, Kirk. We got to go. We got to leave Spock. We'd like to help him, but we got to go to this diplomatic thing. Is I think not that was the, it. the Taste of Armageddon? A Taste where, of Armageddon. Where they, they the compu- computer says they're dead, and they're like, okay, well, you all have to go report to the death chambers now. Oh, that one. Killed you. That's what that one is. Okay. Well, that's kind of – I didn't think much of that, but that episode. And then he goes to do the uh, – then he finally meets with – 
the leaders of the other thing they to try to work something out. Fox does, and then they say, "Oh, I'm sorry, but this integration booth for you, you hit, well, you were in the wrong place. You're dead." Uh, yeah, okay, fine. Yeah. So, for example, Fox, uh, and he looks a bit different here. He's kind of drawn, you know, kind of like a generic, handsome, standard hero guy. You think maybe they didn't have the likeness permission, or maybe, like him? or they just wanted to draw. A generic uh, face, just so they can move on. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, it is supposed to be quite a few years later. Kirk doesn't look like the Kirk that uh, was in that episode, so. Well, no, and and quite frankly, he doesn't look like he did in the movie either. <laughs> I well, no, he does. It's just he's just. Uh, I mean, there are some there are some panels when he looks good. They did a good job, a good likeness. There's other times, no, it's not that good a likeness, but whatever. That's funny. No, but overall, I'm enjoying these these books. Uh, I mean, you, you Me got to remember these books came out early '80s. Um, yep. We hadn't really, you know, they the books are moving more towards uh, more sophisticated storylines and things like that. But right. I mean, it's still in that transition stage where you know, comic books were made for kids, and you know, uh, we gotta, you know, we gotta simplify the stories and things like that so i mean they're getting away from that here but i still think you know comparing this book to gold key and the original oh my god tons better i mean oh are you kidding of course and and as far as making progress to more sophisticated stories i think issue number six of course the last one we'll do today uh was fairly complicated i think there was a lot going on in that one so uh, well, that's an this, example four, of what the, you're talking about. The Ford parter I thought was pretty complicated as far yeah. as I mean it did keep you guessing. Right. Right. And it okay. all made sense, but uh but we could talk about it more once we actually uh give our synopsis. synopsis. Exactly. Which I have the pleasure of doing. Shall I begin? Please. Excellent. So this is the fourth chapter in the wormhole connection. This one's titled Deadly Allies. Published date, May 1984. Creative team is, again, the same, but I'm going to repeat it since it's the first time we're doing one of these in this episode. Writer is Mike W. Barr. Artist, Tom Sutton and Ricardo Valgran. Letterer, John Costanza. Colorist, Michael Wolfman. Editor, Marv Wolfman. The cover presents... Michelle Wolfman. Uh, Okay. Colorist, Michelle Wolfman. Editor, Marv Wolfman. The cover presents Kirk and Kor at its center, looking like they are ready to start a knockdown dragout fight. Surrounding them are at least six rock creatures, watching intently. One rock creature says, To learn the difference between good and evil, the human and Klingon must fight to the death. This issue is the final chapter. The issue picks up with the last issue left off. A huge rock creature is in the same room on the Enterprise as Kirk and Kor. The creature says Kirk will not interfere with the drama unfolding and the quest for knowledge it represents. Or it will surely mean their doom. Kor tries to take out the rock creature and ends up getting fried by some kind of force field around it. The security squad Kirk summons fires on the creature with heavy stun to no effect. 
Kirk tells him to cease firing and demands to know what Yarnak wants. The creature seems mildly surprised that Kirk recalls his name, then recounts their last encounter on the surface of the planet Excalbia. Kirk and Spock, along with recreations of Shurak and Lincoln, were pitted against an equal number of villains to find out which is stronger, good or evil. Kirk says they are back to prove the same thing. Yarnak says, since the last experiment was inconclusive, he is back with his fellows to put on the same experiment, but on a much grander scale. They started by attacking Aelborn and his people on Organia. We can't have them interfering. Once the Organians were nullified, one of their people went to Earth to take control of Grand Admiral Turner, and the other to Kronos to take over Kalis IV. With the two most powerful military forces under their control, they started a war and watched. Kirk says they can't just start a galaxy-wide war. The destruction, the millions who will die. Yarnik says his people, the Excalibans, do not care. They need to have the answer, and the winner will have control of the galaxy. A fair trade. Kirk says they know what Yarnik's game is. They will fight against it. Yarnik says they will not stop anything because they have troubles of their own. Farewell. Yarnak glows brightly, then transitions off the Enterprise. Scotty cuts in immediately, along with emergency klaxons. The engines will blow in four hours. Ahura reports comms are down. There will be no contacting Starfleet. Sula reports they are receiving damage reports from all over the ship. Kirk does not have much time, and he knows it. He tells Kor he has a plan. Kor and Kirk form a pact to join forces and save their worlds. First, they need to stop a riot in the brig, where jailed Klingons and jailed Starfleet crew are going at each other. After a great effort, Kirk and Kor show their truce, their partnership. Most of the crew follow their leads. Even Bearclaw is still a, is still a jerk, but when he rejects shaking Konam's hand... He at least says he will not cut it off. Some progress is made anyway. Kanam realizes he is out Kanam realizes he is outcast from his own people, and he is rejected by the Earthers. He is truly alone. Later in a conference room, Kirk and Kor meet with their senior officers to figure out how they can pierce the dark field that surrounds Organia. They do not have enough power to bring it down, but they think they can put a small hole in it using a specially equipped shuttle. Scotty and a Klingon engineer named Kanor are assigned to the job. Scotty and the Klingon are hesitant at first, but over time warm up to the idea. Savik and a Klingon science officer named Kaz join forces to integrate the Klingon's wormhole stabilizer, which I thought was exploded in the last issue, into the shuttle systems. Three hours, 23 minutes, and 13 seconds to Enterprise Warp Core Breach. The shuttle is ready. Kirk turns to enter the shuttle to pierce the black sphere, but he stops to give Scotty some final orders. If they fail and the warp core is about to breach, then detach the saucer section and put the rest of the ship next to the black sphere. Maybe it will breach it, and maybe it won't, but his top priority is to get the ship and crew to a safe distance. 
Kirk Savick Corps and the apparently lecherous Kaz leave for Organia. They use the wormhole stabilizer to open a hole in the black sphere the shuttle passes through. They land on Organia in front of the main building. No one is there to meet them. They enter the Great Hall and see Aelborn, Claymore, and Trefane, the leaders of Organia, held motionless with three Excalibans directly behind them. Kirk's silver tongue is able to talk the Excalibans into unfreezing the three Organians to engage in a hands-on contest of good and evil. Kirk and his party get out of the building as the Organians and Excalibans square off. Organia itself shudders and comes apart with the power of the conflict. Scotty is able to beam Kirk's party back. They return to the bridge to see the huge combatants in space, who, will, who then wink out. Sulu asks, where did they go? Kirk says he does not care. They are gone, and with it, their control over the galaxy. The Klingons and Federation no longer have an omnipotent babysitter to enforce a peace. They will have to make mistakes, but move forward into their own destinies. Ahead, Warp Factor 1, Mr. Sulu. The end. So, what'd you think? I thought the ending was a little pat. Um, I thought Kirk getting to have the old uh, speech thing and talking people into patently ridiculous things when they're supposedly powerful and and intelligent is uh, kind of fun and kind of hard to believe. But hey, whatever. Um, right. Yeah. That, that was that was my biggest problem with this book is that the the Yarik already knew that the Organians were powerful enough to stop them that's the reason why they're being captured like this right and yet kirk was able to talk them into releasing them and i don't know what it is i mean is it because kirk told them that they would be the good guys and the organians would be the bat would be evil and then then they were like oh yeah well that makes sense so we'll release them (laughs) i mean that's so he, he was stroking their egos is that what you're saying i don't know that's what I'm trying to figure out. How how did they how they do that? Um, or why? Because they the do story that? wanted to end. It's been four issues already. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it you know it, it's just one of those you know some stories are better than others in painting a plausible picture. This one you just had to go with, unfortunately. Right. And another thing is, I thought the Organians were really like, oh, you know, we're pacifists. La 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 la. Well, they sure were pacifists when they came out of being frozen, boy. They were very upset. No, yeah, exactly. And maybe well, it's fine to be a pacifist when you're omnipotent, but uh, maybe after you're shown to be not quite as omnipotent as you think, you get kind of pissed. I don't know. Right. So the Yarnik are from the uh, Savage Curtain original series episode, right? Right, right. Apparently, which, yeah. Which, which we did talk about a little bit last last week. <laughs> We did. So, but but these Yarnik do not look like the Yarnik from, from that episode. You're right. What, when we first were introduced to these guys, I was looking at them going, looks familiar, but I did not, it did not register to me, register to me exactly who they were. And partially it's a good reason, isn't there? 
Well, I don't know if there's a good reason, but I mean, oh. they don't they don't look exactly like them. So that's I'm, the reason. Okay. <laughs> no, yeah, because in, in in the episode they were almost like slug like creatures. I don't think that they were supposed to look rocky. Where these look like they are made out of rock, kind of like the thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they're bipeds, so they have right. legs. Where the Yarnik in the episode, I think, looked more like a Jabba the Hutt type slug creature. Yeah, they're very. Uh... They're very asymmetrically shaped, and uh, yeah, they're very weird-looking things, but they do look organic, um, which makes the claws make a little more sense. Right. And they do have little bumps on their head that, are, that I think are white in color, but they seem to have really tiny little eyes, uh, and they seem to have a mouth and kind of sort of a nose, where these guys in the comic book don't have any of those facial features that I noticed, and they've right. just got a bunch of, like, infinity stones in their face, <laughs> um, uh, which is supposed to be their eyes? I don't know. There was some artistic license taken. Right. So maybe they did it on purpose to kind of not let you guess on issue one, kind of what's going on. Oh, who they really were? Yeah. Maybe. Oh, well, that must be it. That must be why I didn't recognize them until way later. They didn't want you to. There you go. So it's been a while since I've seen the Savage Curtain. I remember I really liked it, and I was, I was all, you know, conspiracy thinking that uh, Jer- uh, Colonel Green from that episode was going to be Peter Weller's character in the Into Darkness, which was obviously wrong. But um, I don't You're... remember the Yarnick being all powerful like they are here, where they can actually control people. I thought that they could kind of make, you know, uh, bring people you know, together. Right, uh, generate people that have been long dead, or generate images of them, or, yeah. or right. So like, well, they're enough. They're there enough to be in a fight with Kirk and Company. Right. But yeah. But they weren't the real person. Well, no. But somehow they created, I thought, physical facsimiles of them. But right. But that's not controlling people all over the universe to create this giant war. Yes, agreed. Agreed. Uh, Although if you can make people see things uh, that aren't there and feel the punches of them, that implies some level of uh, manipulation of the mind. But well, yeah, then, this is, then, then this Kurt, is at a whole new level. Then Picard is just that powerful because he can do the same thing with the holodeck. Yeah, which I never did agree with that photon thing, but yeah. <laughs> So, anyways, I, I I just them being this powerful uh, on par with the Organians and Q and Trelane and all the other super powerful characters we know. Yeah, uh, I just would have never put them in that league. Right, based on the on the TV episode. Right. Yep. Yep. Well, they had. I mean, okay, so fine. So the writers wanted to do this, so they you know they they goosed them a bit, goose right. up their abilities. And change their, their bodies, kind of. Ah, whatever. Well, I mean, from, from the time that episode was made and this episode, this issue came out, the Klingons had gone through a makeover, so why not why not the Yarnick as well? Right. I'm chalking it up to that. There you go. And another thing that we'll continue to see is, at least so far, this series of comics do borrow heavily from the original series. Right bringing characters back um, fairly frequently. I mean, maybe it'll stop 
you know, doing that less often as we go forward. But they are bringing things back from the uh, original show quite a bit. Right. So, well, when when this issue when these issues came out, it was the first time that comic book co- uh, comic book company was able to use storylines from the previous shows. So I don't even think Gold Key they had, might have had the ability to use the characters, but they couldn't continue any of the storylines that were from uh-huh. the show. Uh, Marvel Comics, the only thing they could continue was what was mentioned in Star Trek The Motion Picture. So if it wasn't mentioned in Star Trek The Motion Picture or a plot line in Star Trek The Motion Picture, they could not use it in, in their stories, which is why you know they never did Trouble with Tribbles 3 or whatever <laughs> uh, type storyline. So... Right. Um, so this, I, I think. So I, I'm thinking that they finally got the rights to uh, go back and and mine whatever storylines they want to from the old show, and maybe right. they're just overdoing they went, it here. At they the went hog wild. <laughs> <laughs> well, because this is right after Wrath of Khan, and they saw how good that was. They took yeah. the storyline from the old show, made it better. Yeah, we can do the same thing. Right. Every issue, and it continues on now with uh, ongoing comics. Right. And of course, uh, into darkness. There you exactly. go. Exactly. So, anyways, I like I like the story. Um, I didn't like the resolution, and I did not understand the. I was glad to see that the warp, the wormhole generator thing was was reused from issue two, but uh, it doesn't really make sense because I thought that that wormhole thing was to stabilize. Uh, stabilize an existing wormhole not kind of create a new one so that they could get through the the blackness of organia right um, well the, the whole i the whole idea of what they've done with the whole wormhole stabilizer thing is just incredible fantasy it's like hey let's put two words together and then let it do anything <laughs> yeah it's kind of ridiculous so, I mean, it took the idea of a wormhole that supposedly will take you from one part of the galaxy to another part of who knows where in the cosmos. Um, and they've just stretched it to be whatever they needed it to be. So. Right. And I'm still wondering, because Star Trek The Motion Picture has the wormhole scene, and, and it always confused me because that's not what I thought a wormhole was. That they're, you're going at warp within a solar system. And somehow an asteroid gets in there with you or something, um, which then causes you to be in a wormhole. I never understood that scene. So maybe the definition of what a wormhole at this time and during the Star Trek The Motion Picture just is different than what we think of as wormholes now. Yeah. Well. So I try to rationalize it that way to give them the benefit of a doubt, but it's still perplexing to me. Well, I think the ideas of wormholes, scientifically didn't change much (laughs) it's just how people are taking the science and warping it into what they want it to be Uh, yeah it probably has changed a bit it's right it's morphed i mean I, i think deep space nine had you know a decent concept of it obviously completely ignoring the idea of you know the crushing gravity of trying to go through something like that. But, um, yeah. It, I think it got a little bit more mature by the time Deep Space Nine came out, but still. Right. 
So maybe it is what you were th- you were talking about earlier, where they just took two spacey sounding words and or concepts, concepts and then just made up their own definition for it. Yeah. Yep. Mm. I just find you just have to. It's it's a wonderful use of suspended disbelief. Just go with it. Yeah, I'm going with it. Yeah. Yeah. So. I do like that this kind of explains what happened to the Organians, because correct me if I'm wrong, but we just popped, I mean, there was no explanation during Taws what happened to the Organians um, nope. or their enforced peace. And then I, nothing in, in the motion pictures talked about the Organians again. Nope. Um, but we did have Klingon episodes, like in the third season, like Day of the Dove. Um, so I, I don't know. It, 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 I think it's kind of cool that we ultimately found out why the Organians don't have sway over things anymore. Right. Because they're basically gone. Um, also interesting that it, proposed, it, it, it has the idea of the Klingons and uh, Federation getting together. Um, which, of course, would, would be revisited later in the movies. Right. But, uh, yeah, so I thought it was interesting to see where the Organians went. Yeah, I, I thought the same thing. Yeah. When, when, when they were destroyed, I was like, okay, well, that explains why we don't ever hear about them in Star Trek Three, which is very heavily Klingon versus Federation. Right. And then ultimately in Star Trek Six, which is, you know, the beginning of the peace treaties and stuff. Right, like that. So, right, right. Yep, same same thoughts. Yeah. So I thought Core didn't do much. Except flip characters a few times. I mean, at first he seems like he's going to go along with Kirk, and then he sees Kolar, and I'm a different person now. Kill him. <laughs> well, he's a Klingon, so of course he's going to attack somebody like that. And then and then as as the contest is stated, and... Uh, and and the rock creatures say, oh, "Okay, uh, you'll be you'll be good, Kirk." And then the Klingons will be evil. And then and then Kor uh, is saying, "Hey, we're not evil." I, I love that. that. I thought that was kind of funny, but again, <laughs> it showed how ineffective he was. I mean, he was just a total background character. I think the last truly significant thing he did is try to fight uh, the rock creature, and that worked out well. And then after that, it's like it's the Kirk show, right? So Core doesn't get to do anything. So. Yeah, I, w- I would have liked to have seen a more of a team up with the the, the Federation and Klingons. Exactly, as opposed to Kirk saying, "I have a plan, and here it is," and just just shut up and get in the back seat. I'm driving. Right. Well, I mean, they did have you know the core engineer working with Scotty and things like that. So yeah, but the Klingon engineer, not the core engineer. Yeah, so they had the engineer, and then they had uh, the the lecherous Kaz, who was hitting on Savic <laughs> like yeah, crazy. It it's like, oh, that's that's ooky. You should <laughs> just back. You should just back off, pal. Anyway, yeah, but Savic takes care of it, no problem. Right, she puts him in his place. Exactly. So there was a few shots of the Enterprise. Um, Especially, I think it was on page 14 of the yeah, book, where the nacelles look like they come out straight from the engineering. So, comic book page 14. Um, so, there's no, doesn't look like there's much of an angle 
for the uh, nacelles to come out. Right. So there was a few shots like that, which, you know, it was enough that actually make me pause in reading the story to, to note that uh, it didn't quite look right. Right. Actually, now that you mention it, another thing didn't look right is the fact that the shuttle that they used to breach the black sphere was basically Scott's shuttle, I mean, uh, Spock's shuttle from the motion picture. 100%. So it wasn't like they took a regular Federation shuttlecraft and stuck it onto a warp sled. They 100% went with a Spock, what I thought was a Vulcan uh, shuttle on some kind of, uh, I guess, warp sled. Right. And I'm kind of wondering, if they went to all that trouble sticking a Federation shuttle onto a what I thought was a Vulcan warp sled in the early issues, then why did they switch 100% to what I assume is a Vulcan shuttle design uh, in this issue? Well, did the... Remind me, did the did the shuttle make it in that fight with the the Romulan or the Klingons? They did, right? Yeah, they the shuttle did. Yeah, the shuttle did. I was thinking uh, well, the maybe warp it was destroyed sled or something. The warp yeah, sled the... was destroyed, so right. they must have had another one laying around. But um, but now another shuttle. Yeah. Now, now, mind you, Savik was in the shuttle, and she was taken prisoner. So the shuttle is probably still on the Klingon uh, space station. And was probably destroyed. But come on, they got tons of different shuttles on board. But still, I mean, I mean, I, I just am at a loss. I mean, that's fine that they decide to do that. I just don't think it makes any sense. Right. Unless, of course, it's not a Vulcan sh- shuttlecraft design at all, but it is a Federation one that we just normally never see. But I don't, I, I don't know. I'm going seem to make much sense. Okay. Vulcan is part of the Federation, and he was going towards a Federation ship. But yeah. do they say in the dialogue that it's a Vulcan ship? So, no, they don't say anything one way, one way or the other. Okay. They just say they just say it's a specially prepared shuttle, right? Which really, the only way I can tell it's specially prepared is they've been able to hook in the resurrected uh, wormhole device, wormhole stabilizer. So, and who maybe. Maybe Core's ship is equipped with it, too? I guess? Maybe. I mean, maybe that's something that the Klingon ships carry now as standard kit. But, um, yeah, I just wonder where they got it from. Right. Well, Core seemed a little surprised when he found out that the... Either he was surprised that there was a wormhole base, or he was surprised that it was destroyed. I couldn't tell which. Or yeah. he was just surprised that Kolar had something to do with its destruction. Right. But regardless, one of those three things factored into Kor kind of losing it and trying to attack Kolar. But he right. seemed really surprised when they mentioned the uh, the space station and, and its destruction. Right. Yeah. Okay. But I really liked that scene, though. The uh, Kolar realizing... or. Column. How, how do you say his name? Conan. Conan. When he re- yeah, when he realizes he's that, a barbarian. <laughs> when he realizes that he really has no home. Yeah. 
Yeah, and like, outcast whatever you Canor. Do. No, not Canor. That's the engineer. Konam. Konam. That's it. I think. K O N O M. Right. Yeah, I like that because basically he's Worf. So. Ah. Um, so he's going to be like the Klingon crew member, right? Because by the time we get to our sixth issue, we actually see him in a Starfleet uh, uniform. Yeah, I have comments about that one. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was kind of fast. And he didn't even have to go through the Academy. Okay. Right. Well, we're going to talk about it again, so. Okay. <laughs> All right. Anything else? That's it. All right. I believe it's my turn. It is. So this one is entitled Mortal Gods. It came out June of 1984. All the staff is the same except for the artists being Tom Sutton and Sal Amadola. But uh, in addition, there's the writer Mike W. Barr, letterer John Costanza, colorist Michelle Wolfman, and editor is Marv Wolfman. All right, so the uh, cover shows a man with a headband holding dozens of the Enterprise crew members in his hands. And they're trying to get out, and there's one falling to their death. So the story opens up uh, shortly after the end of the big Federation Klingon war that was in the last couple of issues. The Enterprise is ordered to investigate the disappearance of the USS Valor, which is commanded by a man Kirk once knew, a Captain Hodges. They arrive at Valor's last location, and they find debris both from Klingon ships as well as Valor. They suspect that an escape pod might have made it to a nearby planet. They arrive on the planet, and they find the inhabitants to be a primitive race. But they're surprised when they show some evidence of advancement beyond where they should be. And this is like uh, steel instruments and farming equipment and things like that. They suspect that there's been a break in the Prime Directive. They observe the inhabitants of the planet for a while, and then Bearclaw breaks their cover by shooting a runaway animal with his phaser just before it tramples over some children. The aliens see this, and they claim that more gods have arrived. They take these new gods to see the previous one. Kirk and the landing party are taken to a temple where they are surprised to see Captain Hodges acting as if he was a god. He tells them that he has stopped a bloody civil war on the planet and he has cured many diseases. Kirk is shocked that a Federation officer is able to ignore the Prime Directive in such a manner. Hodges has also taken an alien wife, and he informs them that he was the only survivor of the destruction of the Valor and the crash landing of the escape pod. Elsewhere on the planet, the previous heads of the two civil, the two parties in the Civil War, named Decton and Balor, are meeting. They talk about their desire to return to war, but point out that they cannot as long as the gods are on the planet. They then hatch a plan that might turn some things around. Later that night, General Balor is able to sneak into Hodges' quarters and kidnap the supposed god. The next morning, the aliens are very surprised that their god could be captured. Kirk relies on Bearclaw's Native American's tracking skills to catch up with General Balor and Hodges. He leaves one crew woman to watch over the aliens. While Kirk's group is gone, the aliens tire of waiting and they start a riot. The crew woman is knocked out and her phaser is stolen by Decton. 
Kirk's group finally finds Baylor's camp, and a fight ensues. Baylor is about to kill Hodges when Hodges' wife sacrifices herself to save her god-husband. McCoy orders an immediate beam-up to sickbay to try to save the brave woman. Later, Kirk has a plan on how to get Hodges off the planet without the aliens returning to their bloody civil war. Hodges returns to the planet, and he speaks to the people about how he must leave them now. They, ob they object in disbelief. Suddenly, a huge alien image appears behind him and tells the aliens that Hodges must return. As Hodges is departing, he leaves his father-in-law, Lorak, in charge of the planet. Lorak says it's still a loss that he no longer has his daughter, but he accepts the responsibility. As the Enterprise departs the planet, Kirk speculates that Hodges will have a tough time in the upcoming court-martial hearings, and he tells Savick how the Enterprise crew only bent the Prime Directive, not flat-out break it. The End Well, so, we resurrect a theme that was uh, kind of common in Taz. Uh, a captain being isolated from his crew and uh, in an alien race and saying, Prime Directive? What Prime Directive? And just start messing around with stuff. So um, we saw that recently in Captain Pike in the pre-Into Darkness comic issues. And in the Taz episodes, we saw that in uh, what the... the the Roman episode, Bread and Circuses, mm -hmm. uh, and there are other examples. So here we go. We're re resurrecting and reusing that theme, uh, but with a different captain this time. And with rat people. Yeah, I didn't describe what they look like. They, you think they look like rats? I, I think they're rats, but uh, they're definitely rodents. I mean, look at them. They, you agree, right? That at least they're rodents. Uh... I didn't know what they were because they seemed to have huge eyes without eyelids. So I thought maybe they were like – they reminded me of like Greedo from Star Wars, but oh, maybe with a little more hair. Oh, wait, really? They got a lot more hair. Yeah. Gre Greedo, huh? Hmm. I don't know, just the way the eyes were and the stuff right. was. But now that you say rats, I can kind of see uh, their noses kind of look yeah, good, good point about Yeah, good point about the eyes though. They do have really big eyes. And they never blink, so I just kind of thought they were just these huge orbs on the side of their heads. Right. Well, if you look at some of the shots, like close-ups of their face, they look kind of like rats with big, huge uh, yellow eyes. Right. Yeah, no, now that you mention it, I can see that in their, in their snouts. So uh, could you see, you know, digging on a, on a rat big eye Greedo? Lady? Well, I would hope that, uh, you know, <laughs> looks wouldn't be that important to me, and yeah, I would just love her for who she is. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. A rat Greedo girl. <laughs> Greedo. If that's, if that's what she looks like, that's what she looks like. It's what's on the inside, Ken. <laughs> okay. I did like that Hodges seems to really care for her. It's not like... You know, he took the wife just because they gave it to him, you know, because right. at first it kind of sounds like, you know, when they realized he was a god, they appointed him, you know, ruler over everything and gave me a wife. And right. I was really like, oh, my goodness, that's, that's, tor that's ter terrible. 
And then come to find out, he he really does love her, and she definitely loves him. So, yeah, to the I point like that that they leave with her, right? Which I thought was like, oh, well, okay. But she'd seen too much. Yeah, she's couldn't, seen too much. Couldn't take her back. <laughs> okay. The whole ending kind of reminded me of the beginning of Star Trek Into Darkness with, you know, the the natives. Right. Worshipping those scrolls or whatever. And right. then when they see the Enterprise, they they just toss the scrolls aside. Right. So uh, I was getting a lot of that. But, but you're absolutely right about the, there are other episodes of the original series that kind of deal with the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So. Anyway, so it was good that they uh, they stopped the fighting. I thought it was interesting at the end, though, the Kirk solution. So they do their thing, and then basically, uh, what, Captain Hodges handpicks the leader, uh, his father-in-law. Father-in-law. Um, and at the end, I thought it was interesting when, um, was it Savic? I think it's Savic. Uh, she, she asks, um, you know, thinking about, you know, what what happened there, and then Kirk tells her that unlike the Organians and the Excalbians, uh, you know, they gave um, they gave the, the rat people a choice. And it's like, you did? You handpicked their leader for them. So, yeah, we weren't manipulating them uh, and continuing to manipulate them, but we picked their, their, their king. Right. So it's like, well, uh, I don't re- no. Where's the choice? No, there isn't a choice. We picked it for their leader for them, but you know, right. whatever. I mean, at least it's their leader and not an alien. I mean, to them, right? You know, so that's that's better. Yeah, good point. I ha- I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, my, my one of the things that confused me, especially at the beginning, was. How long has Hodges been on the planet? Because the the war in which his ship was destroyed in was only two issues long. So he couldn't have been on the planet for all that long. Yeah, good and point. And he's already given them, you know, farming equipment and mass-produced it and taught them how to use it and cured diseases and all that stuff. Right. Uh, man, that seems fast. Yeah, and curing diseases is, a, is an interesting one. You're not a doctor. You probably have little to no equipment. You don't know what these aliens' uh, physiology is, um, right. even if you were a doctor. Um, farming? Well, maybe. Um, you know, at least, get, you know, working out how a plow works. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, I agree with you. Good point. Right, but he's already mass-produced these uh, yeah. plows. Yep. Taught him how to use them. Yep. He works fast. Yeah, he does. I'm surprised he didn't have rat children by now. He works so fast. Oh. <laughs> and he seemed to have no remorse for the loss of his whole ship. Oh, like, oh yeah. yeah, by the way, my whole ship's dead. Yep, my a whole few command. Of us, a few of us were in the escape pod, but I was the only one who lived that, too. Yeah, yeah, they're dead, too. And, uh, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm the god. <laughs> and this has all happened in two weeks. <laughs> right. Right. 
Oh, very good point. I hadn't thought about that. I hadn't noticed that. Yeah, I thought the artwork, again, was decent. But again, some of them don't, some of the frames, some of the panels don't look too much like the actors, quite frankly. Um, I think in some some shots, though, the phasers looked a little more accurate. Hate to come back to the phasers, but it really is all about the phasers. <laughs> um, in some shots, it looked a little bit more like like the Wrath of Khan phasers. In other shots, again, the front piece is too long. Um, yeah, I'm just going to keep bringing that up. But are they at least pointed the right way this time? Um, well, <sighs> yes and no. I mean, there are some that they're not. It's got a really long muzzle in some in some panels, which is not the way they're designed. They're really long in the back. But then there are some other shots where they show like a side view, like mm-hmm. after that one um, blonde lieutenant is knocked out. And by the way, She's really, she's got this right cross that just whomps the heck out of her. Uh, whoever that general guy was, I forgot what his name was. Um, I forgot his name now, too. Yeah, but, I mean, he just whomps the heck out of her. Wham! Or actually, Wud! W-H-U-D. Um, but there's a shot there when she's, like, on the ground and he picks up the phaser. It looks pretty accurate. Um, anyway, it just keeps on... Messing with the idea that guns have to have a long barrel, uh, which they don't. Anyway, Not in whatever. Star Trek. Every well, other franchise they do. Yeah. Yep. Even the battle phaser, um, which is a little bit more where the handle, hand grip is more in the middle of the phaser. Still, it's not, uh, it doesn't have a, a long barrel. Anyway, whatever. Right. So maybe you just didn't know it, but even the phasers back then had moving parts. So maybe if you point it one way, it's kill, and uh, point it the other way, and it was... uh, You're being funny. Yes, I'm trying to be funny. (laughs) (laughs) So the whole top part, the entire thing, rotates on the the pistol grip, is what you're saying. That's... Yeah, and we just never knew it, because they never showed it on screen, like, until Star Trek, the 2011 movie. You're just a 2011 movie phaser hater, aren't you? <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Well, it's going to be interesting to see if they uh, do it any differently in the third movie. Well, they got away without having to show it in the second one. Well, they didn't show it doing any flippy thing, but they right. did. They they used a hand phaser, but yeah, they just didn't show any close-ups. Right. Well, they will have the opportunity to change it because definitely no two ways about it. They had many, they had, what, three distinct different phaser designs in the six movies? Right. And then, yeah, they changed it to every other movie or something. Yeah, and then, and then the phaser, not, then they changed, actually, the next gen, they, they had some changes too, um, although they were more subtle in general. So now, eh, sure, we got the reboot, and uh, we're about due for a new phaser. So maybe you'll get something you like better. <laughs> Anyways, back to this one. Uh, anything else? <laughs> no. It, it yeah. was not my favorite. It was not my favorite either. No. Um, just in regards to advertisements. I ah, really there were some interesting ones. The uh, Moon Patrol uh, Atari advertisement at the end of the book. So you you're, remember? Not gonna, you're not going to mention the Superman Lex Luthor doll? Okay. Not yet. Let me get okay, there. Okay, sorry. Okay. 
But the Moon Patrol thing was cool. Oh, I loved right. Okay. Moon Patrol when I was a kid. Yeah. And then I had forgotten that Atari at this mo- at this time in, in history was owned by Warner Brothers. And Warner Brothers at this time in history also owned DC Comics. Oh. So I was kind of surprised that we haven't seen more Atari advertisements in these huh. DC Comics. So they would get a cut rate for right. advertisement. It's called there Synergy, man. Uh, synergy. <laughs> exactly. It's Synergy. And then uh, what Lex Luthor doll were you talking about? Do you mean the superpowers action figures? <laughs> oh, yeah. It, it actually is a Superman doll punching a uh, cartoon Lex Luthor. It's not a doll. These were action figures. It's a doll. Now, Superman has a fabric cape, it looks like. Mm-hmm. Nice feature. Yes. So Superman, Although, Batman, Robin, they all had fabric capes. Wow, cool. Now, it, mind it you, it doesn't go down to the ground, but, you know, whatever. It's a short cape. It goes down to his knees. Yeah, yeah. Batman's went all the way to the ground, then it was cool. And then Robin's went to his butt. Short cape. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Now these these action figures, you know, I I I was looking at this one, and of of the ones on the bottom, I think the only one I didn't have was maybe Green Lantern and Hawkman, but I had all these other ones. Oh, did you? Yeah. Cool. And they all had this, like you uh, squeezed on their legs, and right, or you squeezed some part of them, and another part of the body would move. So Superman, you moved his squeezed his legs, and his little fist would go up and down like in ah. this picture. Like it's showing, yeah. Yeah. Brainiac, you would push on his arm and he would kick. Robin had like a karate chop. <laughs> and the Joker would swing his hammer. Yeah. Flash, cl- his legs would move really fast. Those clever folks at Kenner. Yeah. Now, as a kid, being a superhero fan, these were the greatest toys ever. Cool. All right. Shall we move on? Let's do that. So I'll be doing number six, which is a little bit more complicated. It's a little longish in the synopsis. And the title is, Who is Enigma? Published date, July 1984. Everybody's the same, so I'm not going to bother going through that. The cover shows two Kirks that both say they are Jim Kirk. A third person is holding a phaser on Kirk. Text says... Choose wrong, and it's war. And also, there appears to be two. There appears to be two covers available, at least in the PDF file I've got, and uh, they both look almost identical, except that the coloring is a bit different between the two. And there are some differences in text boxes, uh, like there's one that is uh, with a red background and yellow text saying "classic" on the cover. Uh, so I'm not sure what the deal was there. Were they were they doing collector covers back then? I don't know. Kirk meets and shakes hands with Ambassador Robert Fox as he comes down off the Enterprise transporter pad. The Ambassador's mission is to save peace negotiations between the Klingons and the Federation that are teetering on the brink of failure. As Captain Kirk takes the Ambassador out and into the corridors of the refit, refitted Enterprise, Scotty beams aboard six replacement crewmen from the starbase that Fox came up from. They are mostly aliens, and none are in Starfleet uniforms. 
as they walk through the halls of their new posting, what appears to be an Andorian thinks about how he should be able to complete his mission before the real Andorian he knocked out will be discovered on the starbase. Elsewhere, Kirk confirms with a security man named Richardson that he has the ambassador's security escort to that night's banquet ready. Richardson confirms that he does. The fake Andorian finds himself in a hallway alone and shifts his appearance to fit that of security officer Richardson. The imposter gains entry into the ambassador's room and in front of Fox shifts his shape. The real Richardson and an ensign arrive at the door and hears the ambassador's scream. They dematerialize the door with their phasers and see two figures inside. When they enter, one form is in the process of turning into a huge green alien with tentacles and looks like an angry octopus. But this creature can take a phaser from both the security guards and runs past them into the hall. It's an amazing creature. They see the ambassador on the floor and call for a medic. The creature gets away. Kirk and McCoy arrive and the ambassador recovers. McCoy says the marks on the ambassador's neck are from a Rigelian decipod that has been extinct for a hundred years. Kirk finds out from the ensign that the creature can shift its shape. Kirk orders a 24-hour guard on the ambassador. The ambassador finds a memory card at his feet. He assumes the assassin dropped it and plugs it into a player. What he sees shocks him. A voice saying... The Orion League wishes to announce the cessation of Ambassador Robert Fox from the Federation. Fox says, Good God, I was right. It's her. Meanwhile, Kirk, McCoy, Sulu, and Savick gather in a briefing room to take part in a video consultation with Commodore Benedict of the Federation Security Council. When Kirk tells the Commodore... The assassin can change his shape at will. The Commodore knows immediately who it is. It's an enemy operative named Enigma. He is working for the Orion Victory League. Kirk offers help when they arrive at the peace talks at Babel, but the Commodore cuts him off and rejects the offer. Kirk needs to get the ambassador to Babel in one piece, and that's it. His people will take over from there. Meanwhile, Ambassador Fox discovers his daughter, Trisha is involved with the plotters. Kirk takes multiple measures to defend against the intruder, including asking McCoy if his medical tricorder can detect the shapeshifter. They arrive at Babel. Fox prepares to beam down to the surface. They still have the intruder aboard. McCoy and Kirk bump into Savick, who is preparing to eat steak. Kirk calls her on it, given Vulcan's strong tendency to be vegetarians. She says she is half Romulan. McCoy says she checks out as a Vulcan, according to his tricorder. Kirk apologizes. Later in the transporter room, Kirk and security people are present as Scotty beams Ambassador Fox down. Just before Scotty initiates the transport, Kirk realizes Scotty is the shapeshifter. Enigma then shifts into Shape of a Golden Eagle. Kirk tells Fox to get off the platform. The stormtroopers, I mean security guards, shoot and miss the Golden Eagle. 
The transportation cycle continues and beams Enigma down to the planet. Kirk knows there is something up with Fox and queries the computer concerning the ambassador's personal files for a person named Trisha. Savick joins him and discovers she is Fox's estranged daughter. McCoy calls Kirk down to Scotty's quarters, saying Scotty may be dying. There is evidence in his room he was injected with Demorian water rat venom. He will die in 24 hours from the ingestion if he is not treated. A shipwide search is begun for the chief engineer, but so far it turns up nothing. Savik, apparently having amnesia about the ship's internal sensors, has no ideas. Kirk comes to the conclusion the only person that knows where Scotty is, is Enigma. They must find her. Commodore Benedict has given the order to shoot Enigma on sight, which will doom Mr. Scott if it happens. A Klingon ambassador named Kolor is beamed down to Babel from a D-7 cruiser. As Kolor shakes hands with the Federation ambassador, Enigma, in, f- in the form of an eagle, watches and decides Kolor is too well protected to assassinate for now. Kirk beams into Ambassador Fox's quarters and tells him he knows all about his daughter. Fox breaks down and tells him about his daughter joining a revolutionary organization and she hating him. Kirk says she may have been brainwashed by the Organian League. There may be a way of getting her back. Excitedly, Fox says he would do anything to get her back. Kirk says he hoped Fox would say that, and puts his plan into motion. In a grand hall, under heavy security, Ambassador Fox and Ambassador Kolor meet for their first round of negotiations. There are many of Commodore Benedict's security people in and outside of the Great Hall. Kirk gives the word, and the security men in the hall are beamed out and held in a transporter beam for now. Seeing the guard is gone, Enigma makes her move. She flies down to be right next to the ambassadors and shifts form to size of a gorn. Kirk McCoy and Savick beam into the hall behind Enigma, who is lunging at the diplomats. McCoy digs for something to knock out a gorn, while Kirk attacks and is able to constrict its windpipe enough to put Enigma on her knees. She changes shape to become a duplicate of Kirk. Unfortunately, no one seems to have played the old shell game because immediately they can't tell who is the real Kirk. McCoy prepares a hypo of Retinax 5, which he says only the real Jim Kirk is allergic to. Enigma turns to run, but Savick drops her with a Vulcan neck pinch. McCoy injects her with a neural paralyzer that should stop her from shapeshifting. The still groggy Enigma tells them where Scotty is. McCoy beams back to the ship to treat him as soon as security guards can get him out of the crawl space above the officers' staterooms. They beam the guards back into the hall. Commodore Benedict enters the room, and he is pissed. Kirk puts him in his place when he points out that they captured Enigma and, more importantly, saved the lives of both ambassadors. Ambassador Kolor puts the icing on the cake by commending Kirk for saving their lives and saying he will recommend Kirk for the Klingon Courage Medal.
Back on Enterprise, Scotty is recovering after McCoy injected him with Misaform D. Misaform D? That, con- that counteracted the poison. With Kirk's encouragement, Ambassador Fox attempts a reconciliation with his daughter, the shape-shifting murderer. The end. That was the greatest synopsis ever. Was it? I loved all the references to uh, Super Friends <laughs> and Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> well, I couldn't, I couldn't help doing the Super Friends thing. With the uh, shape of certain items. Exactly. Exactly. Shape of blah. Size of blah. You know, it's like, uh, uh, yeah. So that was the Indian guy, right? No, that the, was the Native uh, American the Indian Twins. guy. No, uh, well, oh yeah, the Native uh, Tomahawk. He would that, that guy. Yeah, he could change his size, but then uh, the, the uh, Wonder Twins would be the ones that could change into animals. Oh, okay, okay. Sorry, I got a little off. You got them both. That's fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Well, you want to have some fun with it, especially. It was really going long too, but it's like there was so many things going on. I didn't want to simplify it too much. <laughs> All right. All right. So, Ken, in your synopsis, you mentioned uh, the two covers that are on the PDF. Right. One with a price tag of seventy-five cents, and the other one with a whopping dollar twenty-five. Oh, how interesting! I did not uh, notice the difference in price. Okay. Right. So um, later, like in eighty-nine, eighty-eight, uh, comic books were becoming really popular again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, there was this company, so much fun, Inc. That would take um, back issues of DC Comics characters and kind yeah. of reprint them, bundle them up in like a like a set of like three or four issues, and then sell them in toy stores. Oh, um, hmm. And so they wouldn't have the barcodes. The advertisements would be missing or different mm-hmm. um, inside of them, but the story itself would be the same, just just reprinted. Right. Um, and like you mentioned, the cover, you know, they threw classic on there, uh, and maybe the coloring on the cover was a little different. Right, but uh, but yeah, that's that's why it was. So the, even though it has a cover date of July '84 on the more expensive one, right. that one probably came out, if I was guessing, in '88 uh, or '89. Oh, hmm. interesting. Oh yeah, and I see. Okay, I should have realized that. So not only does it have a classic text box, but it has another one where they've replaced the new DC. There's no shopping uh, stopping us now. With a, a box that says distributed by so much fun, so right. much fun. Hmm. Yeah. So on the normal on the normal one where you know you see the the new DC, there's no stopping us now. Um, right. If it was if it was sold in a comic book store, that's the cover you would have. If it was right. sold at a convenience store like Seven Eleven or whatever, it would have a normal UPC barcode there. Huh. So um, I think most of the prints here on the pdf are from you know that they made scans of the comic the the comic shop version but right uh, when you're buying this you may see a newsstand version which would have the barcode there hmm. interesting cool yeah, yeah it, i bought i bought uh, a lot of uh, those comic book packages there in the in the toy stores and mm-hmm. and things like that when when they were doing that because uh you know, I was I was still a poor little kid. So when when you could buy like a big stack of three or four issues mm-hmm. in a bag for you know really cheap price, right? I go, oh, I'm going to get that. So I got a lot of Batman and Superman and Star Trek ones that way. Cool. So just 
Just a little background. <laughs> um, well, before we get off of this, since we're talking about the cover, I wanted to mention how the phaser is very prominent on this <laughs> cover. Uh-huh. And it's a very confused, very confused depiction of the Wrath of Khan phaser. Parts of it are accurate and parts of it isn't. Um, so let me just say that um, I'm, not, I'm not crazy about <laughs> how they're depicting phasers in, in this whole series. And I know I've said it before, but I continue to be amazed at the variety of depictions going on. So there you go. Well, I'm not going to go. Into, I'm not going to go into details because everybody's probably sick of me saying this. But <laughs> well, is it turned around, or is it? At least... Well, okay. So if you look at the shape of it, how it's kind of uh, tapering in the back, okay, right. uh, and and the front part of it's really long and tapers less. That's basically backwards. Okay. So because I've got one in my hand, it's a toy one. Oh, you don't have the real one? Well, as opposed to being a several hundred dollar prop, you know, two to four hundred dollar prop made out of metal and plastic, this is just like a thirty dollar toy. But it is, it's real, it's full size. So I think this is one of those, um, those nice ones that was designed by uh, Art Asylum or something like that. Okay. Uh, Yeah, Diamond Select Toys is the manufacturer, but it was probably designed by Art Art Asylum. Anyway, it's the right size and everything. Um, So the fact that the little knob, which, by the way, isn't a controller knob, which they make it look kind of like a controller knob. Yeah, I was going to ask you, because I thought it looked like a little joystick in this one almost. Right, or at least a a knob that you turn, like a selector kind of thing. That's not what it was. Um, It's actually more of a push button. Anyway, so that is in the back, so that's correct. And the controls on the top, that's oriented correctly. So on the left tells you, you know, what, in, what setting it's on, you know, disintegrate or stun or, or heat or whatever. And then there's like a, the, the two things in the middle, the white things in the middle are selectors. I guess you press it, you know, to go up or down. And then the, the lights on the right are not right, but whatever. Okay. I mean, the main thing is the control thing is towards the front, so that's accurate. And the little knobby thing is is correct. That's in the back. That's right. But the general shape is not right. And you should not be able to see the person's hand because the back extends pretty far and should cover up most of that most of that person's hand. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> I obsess on the oddest things. I was wondering about that. Actually, I thought it was turned around completely, and I was expecting uh, whoever is going to do the shooting to get shot in the face. Exactly. Well, in a lot of ways, it is turned around, like I just said. So, right. Yeah. So, uh, this scene reminded me a lot of Star Trek VI with the uh, no shoot, shoot him. I'm the real Kirk. Right. So we're so they retreaded this book. I bet so. I in bet the they, movie. They must have read this book when it came out in 84 or when it was reprinted in the late 80s. And mm-hmm. they were like, oh, that was good. That's a great idea. Let's do that. <laughs> and, of course, having shapeshifters, even though they don't call them shapeshifters, is a popular thing. Um, so, 
Right. Yeah, I did not buy how she became a shapeshifter. Oh, God, I hate that. So it's just some sort of meditative discipline she learned by some monks in the woods or something crazy like that? That's crazy. That's stupid. <laughs> I was just like, oh, no, you had me until then. <laughs> well, which is apparently Kirk is citing in the comic book. Kirk is citing this because of an episode of Taz in which um, a character, Captain, what, Garth? Gareth? Um, oh, okay. Was able to do this. Uh, I don't remember that one. I, I don't remember that. I, I hate to say this because I put myself forward as a Taz fan. But... I, I guess that probably is the case. I really don't remember that episode very well. But again, it was a, a captain gone bad. Starfleet captain gone bad. Um, anyway, it, it's just stupid. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, okay, operations or some... I mean, the whole idea of shape-shifting is ridiculous enough. But if you weren't born to it, <laughs> it's like... And you're human, and you just learn it? It's like, ah, I agree with you. Yeah, that was I cannot agree with you more. That was the problem I had. That was the only one? Um why was there more? <laughs> that was the worst one. That was the worst one. Actually, I'm kind of interested. Where's Chekhov? So, did they actually say Okay, so I know at the beginning of Wrath of Khan, he was assigned on a different ship. Right, um, and then that ship was summarily destroyed by the end of the ship, under the end of the show, and he lost his captain. Um, so I had the impression Sulu or Chekhov was just going to, you know, reassign to the Enterprise, but apparently that didn't happen yet. So Good point. Good they're point. making that assumption here. No Chekhov, he's off on some other ship, I guess. So, well, they 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 don't mention it. They just no, they don't. He, no, he's just not at anywhere. Yeah. I mean, Wow, I, I good point because he should be the head of security, right? Because that was his well, job in um, Star Trek Three, and in Star Trek Two on that other ship. Yeah. So right, so I'm assuming that he just hadn't got he was not immediately reassigned, which is what I assumed happened. Well, now I feel bad that I hadn't even noticed it there. Right. I mean, I do like in these how. Um, Sulu is clearly the go-to guy, you know, like second in command. Right. So well, I do. Even I love to that. First officer in this one. Oh, did they? Did yeah. they? Oh, okay. Good. He should be. He should be. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, definitely love that. Um, and there was even a thought bubble about, hey, I keep on doing captain-like stuff. When the heck am I going to get a command? Mm-hmm. That was in one of the first three issues, right? Right. Yeah. All right. So he definitely. Chekhov's in the first issue of this series, so I, I don't know where he went oh, in these last few issues. But he, okay. yeah, he's in issue one. Okay, but he's not in this issue. You're right. Well, so, yeah, I don't. Interesting. He certainly wasn't in any of these three, was he? No, no. Okay, and I don't even remember seeing him. Period. But I must have misremembered. So was do you know was he in more than one issue? I don't know. I, I just know that I, I remember him in issue number one. Right. I don't remember him having a part in anything less. Okay. Else. So he may still be aboard. They're just choosing not to include him. Yeah. Okay. Kind of like the first season of the original series. He's just somewhere else on the ship. <laughs> oh, I thought he was... Re- okay. I thought he was a fresh recruit when we first saw him. 
It depends on what story you're reading. Remember okay. we did those annual – Oh, that's right. You're completely right. He was there, <laughs> at least according to the comic book. Right. Okay. So so when uh, when they go down to the planet and mm-hmm. the, the bird is watching them and thinking, oh, I got to bide my time, mm-hmm. uh, the next page, I guess, showing later that day or something, and uh, Adam, um, Ambassador Fox is holding up what looks like action figures, <laughs> and he's thinking, In a box. where did I go wrong? Right. Yeah. What, what What is that? Is that supposed to be some sort of holographic? picture of the two of them or or what is it that's what i assumed but it's in a box well it's in it's in a green cube and they're standing bolt upright with their arms to the side wrapped in plastic ready to be sold it's not wrapped in plastic that is clearly a holographic crystal block uh (laughs) of which which i'm sure was meant to sell toys um i'm sure that's I'm sure that's a stealth advertisement, but <laughs> but that is interesting. You make a good point. Um, it does look like action figures, not dolls. Right. Yeah, not dolls. Jeez. <laughs> 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 no, I, I I had to go back and reread those two pages just because I was so confused as to suddenly the birds looking at them, and then boom, the next panel he's holding up these action figures, and I'm like, is is he still in front of the Klingons? And then, uh, and then suddenly Kirk shows up, beams yeah. in. I well, was all confused. Okay, so they're all on the ship. They were getting ready to beam him down, but then the whole eagle thing comes up. Golden, right. Again, a golden eagle at that. Right. Um, so that all happened. And I thought in the transporter room, Fox said, I'm going to my quarters. He does. So I thought his quarters were on the Enterprise. So well, I thought, oh, they're not going to beam Fox down until they've located this this Enigma person. Okay, that's, that's fine. That's the way I took it too, yeah. But then a few panels later, you see an ambassador with a red medal around his neck welcoming the Klingon ambassador. And it's like, oh, that kind of looks like Fox, but then I thought it was some other ambassador. No, it's him. He's somehow well, got to the sh- exactly. So some other way, maybe. Yeah. I don't so know. I I had to refit my thinking because I apparently you and I were on the same page. I thought he was still on the Enterprise, but obviously he was transported down eventually at some point. He did meet with the Klingon ambassador, and he was in his quarters in on the planet with the in the facility on, yes. with the action figures exactly. So. Yeah, whole big mess of confusion right there for me. Yeah, yeah, that was that was very confusing. Anyway, so then you find out the estranged daughter and blah blah blah. Why did Kurt insisting that they reconcile? Well, because of him and David. Uh, yeah, because he knows what it's like to have a kid that doesn't love him. Exactly. Exactly. And then to well, he, okay, he hasn't lost him yet, right? Okay, fine. Oh yeah, we don't know that yet. Well. Kirk doesn't know it, so be quiet. Anyway, uh, yeah. So my big thing was, at the end, he's trying to reconcile with his daughter, and as far as I'm concerned, the daughter should be in chains, uh, pumped up with that muscle paralyzer thing to keep her from shape-shifting. Right. She's, she's dangerous. I mean, right? Yeah, absolutely. Am I right? It's like, you what, are right. What's going on here? Anyway. 
100% right, Ken. And when I'm right, I'm right. So what do those um, – when you look at uh, what uh, Commodore Jerkface Benedict uh, and his security officers on the planet, what do they remind you of? What do they remind me of? Stormtroopers? Well, no. Well, kind of. Um, they remind me of the Imperial officers that were on the Death Star. You know, dark outfits. Right. Um, even some of them that were operating, you know, some of the heavy equipment and stuff. I right. mean, they had they had helmets helmet. kind of, sort yeah. of like that. Oh, yeah, exactly like that. So it's like, why did you make it look like Star Wars? I don't know. Was it a conscious decision? I don't know. I don't know. I was thinking the same thing. I think so. It had to be. I, I, yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. So they resurrected Fox. He looks quite a bit different than he did in the Taws episode. We, we alluded to that at the beginning. Um, so it's just another one of my examples of where they're not necessarily very uh, accurate. Right. Oh, did you want to talk about uh, Kanam being in a Starfleet uniform? Oh, yeah. What was that about? I don't know. Because what was he? He's in the transporter room, and he's the guy that operated the transporter to beam out the uh, guards? Yeah, to beam them into, like, uh, the pattern buffer. The pat- pattern buffer, exactly. When I was saying, when I was doing the synopsis and, and the words were coming out of my mouth, I was thinking, pattern buffer. I should have said pattern buffer. <laughs> Yeah, so where's Scotty? Why didn't he do it? Why is, <laughs> it? why is it this guy, and why is he wearing a uniform? Well, we know why it's not Scotty. Oh, that's right. right. That's right. Scotty's but but why has he got a uniform? Exactly. I he mean, won't... who appointed him a member of Starfleet? Right. Yeah, at first I thought they did it to, as some sort of trick, you know, that, that they would show up on the ship, and then there would be a Klingon, and I was like, are they going to pretend like this is alternate reality where <laughs> – Klingons or the Federation? I, I don't know. Yeah, I was right. really confused. Right. Yeah, yeah, he should be, you know, if you're going to have him around, that's fine, but you should acknowledge in some way how he transitioned from a member of the enemy into a Starfleet officer. So. Right. Yeah, some scene. Yeah, Something. Need, 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 you know, yes, he was feeling all, I don't belong anywhere last issue. But I don't see where oh, you get from it. that to here unless you had a scene that said, you know what, I feel sorry for you. Exactly. You they do want to make him here. feel better. Here is your uniform. That's it. They just Acting want to make him feel better. Conor. Okay, you got it. But I needed that scene. It wasn't there. Ah, I've, I've covered all my, my comments. And they weren't all good. They, they were mostly, you know, pointing out things that didn't make a lot of sense. But... Right. Uh, you know, overall, it was okay. I think it was a more sophisticated issue in that there were a lot of things going on. Um, and they were trying to have peace with Klingons, so that's cool. Um, anyway, so I thought, it was, I thought it was okay. Right. And you in the synopsis, obviously, you mentioned the um, the chokehold on the Gorn with, with Kirk. Oh, yes. Uh, I, I thought that was pretty, pretty funny. Uh, I thought it was great that Kirk could still do something like that at his age. And he actually says something like, I'm getting too old for this. Right. But um, it was a great kind of, um, I don't know, fighting con in the original Taz episode kind of thing. 
you know? Right. Using your leverage, using the, the strongest appendage you have, which is your legs, to uh, put a sleeper hold on him. I, I thought that was, that was good strategy from a, um, you know, from a hand-to-hand combat thing. Right. Um, just like, I was just thinking, what would happen if I attempted something like that? I would die. <laughs> of course, you're not a trained fighter. Like I would die. Anyway. <laughs> So he's up on his shoulders. How he got up on his shoulders, that's a spry captain, I must say. Right. It wasn't like he had a little jumping board or something or a little a little you know, a little uh trampoline or something. <laughs> Just somehow he got up on top of his shoulders and was doing the old sleeper hole, so I don't know. But Yeah, no, that's ridiculous. It was funny though. But I, I, I like I like the line. I'm getting too old for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least acknowledge the fact that the character is old, even if they don't really draw him old. Right. He's in he's in fantastic shape. Of course. He's in the shape of a, a you know a 30 year old, 25 year old. Right. All right. Well, that wraps up this issue. So next week uh, we're going to continue with the Star Trek on um, Star Trek Volume One. We're going to skip issues seven and eight because we covered that way back with episode 28 of our podcast. Right. So uh, we wanted to do a Savick story back then uh, because we just did the Untold Voyages number two, which was kind of a Savick story. So we did seven and eight then. Right. Uh, so we're going to skip which... those. And then next week, nine, 10, 11 of, of Star Trek volume one which covers the events immediately after Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. Very cool. So this is a nice breaking point. So I got a feeling that perhaps uh, somebody will make an appearance back into the ongoing. Hmm, Maybe who could that be? named Spock? Spock, perhaps? That would be cool. Yeah. Uh, Savix stay as the um, third terrific trio was lovely. But uh, let's get some Spock action back in here. Right. Now, this will be after, you know, Robin Curtis Savick. So I'm curious to see mm-hmm. if she changes her physical appearance. I'm, I'm confident she will. And, you know, Savick and uh, Savick did help Spock through his pond far a few times there on oh. the planet. So I'm really <laughs> curious to a see. A few times? That we know of. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious to see if they make reference to that and you know in the expanded universe they do eventually get married so I'm wondering right. if maybe some of those seeds will be evident as early as, as these issues so really looking forward to it <sighs> good point that should be very interesting okay so thanks everybody for joining us and we'll see you next time on the review later thank you for listening to Star Trek comic book review all Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated all music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only you can email us at star t comic book review at gmail.com visit us at our website www.stcomicbookreview.com Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. 
See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.